Today on Doctor Who's That, we're going to talk about a fainting horse, Sean Connery's big break, and the Kennedy assassination. So Sean Connery accidentally assassinated the, uh, the the president of the United States by dropping a horse on him. It was very unexpected. <laughs> And welcome back to episode zero, part two of Doctor Who's That. I am one of your hosts, Sean Gleason. I am the resident Doctor Who expert. Our, I guess you could say, intermediate Doctor Who fan, Andy Walker, cannot be here today. But we have our other main host, Bay, with us. Bay? Uh, Bay Johnson, our neophyte here. And... um... Glad to be back for another episode. And we also have our guest from last time, Kieran Cowan, with us. Hi, I'm just happy to help oversell this before you actually watch a single episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, uh, before we get started, I just want to remind you what our show here is about. As Bay said, he he really hasn't watched much, if any, Doctor Who before. And throughout this, we'll sort of be introducing him to the show as you listen along with us. I want to let you all know that since Doctor Who is a family show, this is going to be a family show as well. That doesn't mean we're going to shy away from controversial topics if they come up, which they occasionally do on Doctor Who, but there's not going to be any bad words or dirty jokes or anything like that. We're keeping this show clean. I also want to warn you that when we talk about these episodes, there will be spoilers. Uh, The show has been on for 55 years at this point, so I think the statute of limitations on spoilers has kind of run out. And I also would like to encourage you to watch along with us. You can find most of these episodes on the internet somewhere. Um, If you want to pay some money, there's the online service BritBox, which has the majority of the classic Doctor Who serials, except for most of the Dalek ones and the missing serials. They're getting the Dalek ones at the end of the month, actually. Oh, wow. Nice. That'll make things a lot easier. You could also find some of these on things like YouTube, although not quite as much. A lot of them you could find on Daily Motion, And there you could find the best reproductions of the missing episodes as well. So I would definitely say if you're going to listen to us, you might as well watch the show with us as well. Come on, it'll be fun. Last time we talked about some of the people who were involved in creating Doctor Who. And we talked about the search for the show's producer. And that finally landed on a woman named Verity Lambert. So we're going to start today by talking about some of the aspects of the production of Doctor Who. This show wasn't really produced like shows today are. For one thing, this show aired 48 weeks a year during its first several seasons. So that's quite a few episodes that they were doing. And they had the same number. (laughs) Definitely. That's what, four weeks off? Four weeks without the show for the full year. Pretty much. The initial thought was that the show might last for maybe a year. So a lot less than the 26 original, was it 26 or 27 original seasons? 26 seasons. 26 seasons. 27 years. 
They had a budget of 2,300 pounds per episode. So they didn't really have a huge amount of money to spend on this. In fact, you could say that they had the opposite of a huge amount of money. (laughs) Um, They were also given, let's face it, it was the garbage studio to film the show in. It was Studio D at Lime Grove. And if there's anything that could be wrong with a television studio, it was wrong with this place. It had poor lighting. The studio itself was on an upper floor, and it only had a really tiny lift to get props and everything up there. So they really had to limit the size of the props. We call those elevators here in America. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, we're talking about a British show, so we're going to use British (laughs) terms. (laughs) So that lift was the reason why... Bunny Weber's planned serial, The Giants, finally died. Even if it was within the budget to do a show where the TARDIS crew is shrunk to an eighth of their size, there was no way they could get all those giant sets up to Lime Grove Studio D. It just was not a possibility. It also needs saying that until... I think the last story of this season, they did not have the budget or capacity to do any location filming at all. Everything has to be in this studio for the first year. Yeah. So everything is done in this studio. That is basically an oven. (laughs) It has terrible lighting. The main source of the... It was a garbage um, studio. Like this was on a shoestring budget in the first place. They were like reusing a ton of stuff. They had money for certain things, but it needs also pointing out Lime Grove, the biggest problem with it was that it was almost too narrow to film anything in. At one point in the first season, there is a scene involving a horse. The heat of the lights made the horse pass out and filming had to be stopped because it became physically impossible to get past an unconscious horse. That's how narrow the studio was. (laughs) Don't tell PETA about this. That horse would have died years ago by this point. I think we can move on. (laughs) That was just not a good studio for recording anything, let alone a science fiction production. Were they able to have uh, multiple cameras in there and get, uh, get more angles? Yeah, but the cameras were 1963 huge cameras, and they took up a lot of space, too. Plus, you've got one standing set, which is the size of a large room, which even at the back was taking up a big allotment of their space. There were a lot of problems with the studio to a point where it led to production delays because they spent some time trying to get a better studio. And um, as you could imagine, it caused a lot of problems. If they weren't sure they would actually be able to use this studio, they weren't really able to commission a lot of scripts yet because it's hard to write for a show if you don't know where you're going to be filming the show. And uh, uh, several of the scripts in the first season were dropped, not because there was anything wrong with them. It's just that you could not conceivably recreate the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in this place, which was seriously a script they tried, they developed fully until, yeah, they, it, it was a fool's paradise to think it was doable. <laughs> Yeah, kind of like the Giants. Did they bring some of these scripts back? Most of them, not really. Some of them were reworked. Like, the Giants would eventually be reworked into a different script a bit later. Big Finish have at some point adapted quite a few of the stories that were unused for various reasons to audio. So they were eventually forced to stick with this studio And so now came the part where they had to search out some scripts. And initially, they sought to commission 12 four-part stories. They figured that using four-part stories would be good for several reasons, not the least of which is for audience comprehension and for audience interest. They figured that shorter stories would hold people's attention more. But they also realized, after a little bit, that that many stories of such a short length 
wouldn't work with the budget. They'd have to build sets, get costumes, get actors, and the budgets were just too small to support that many short stories. So once again, you have something that's determined by the budget of this show. A lot of the early stories were pretty long, and a lot of that had to do with these budgetary concerns. Um, Because regardless of the many, many reasons why shorter stories are better for the audience, longer stories are better for production and for the budget. So the decision was made to go longer. They also have a a built-in pass-fail after 13 episodes, which is what they're initially contracted for. And so they realize fairly quickly that they are going to need to have a story that ends on the 13th episode just in case. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they started to commission scripts. You know, they had originally started commissioning these scripts when there was this idea for these 12-story-long season. So a lot of the scripts that they commissioned ended up getting unused. There were at least eight unused scripts during the first season that I could find. And um, one of these stories was written by Anthony Coburn, who we talked about last time, and who wrote the first serial. Actually, he wrote four scripts, and three of them were cut. But the one that we seem to know most about was one that was called The Robots, or alternatively, The Masters of Luxar. This was planned to be the second serial. It was a six-part script about a self-aware robot trying to get a soul. And it was kind of about the dangers of machine intelligence. It also had a lot of Christian overtones and... There was, I think, a decision at the time that that was a direction they didn't want the show to go in so overtly. Yeah, I mean, it made crystal clear that, was it the doctor was a Christian? Which seems kind of odd that he's in this alien from another planet. Yeah, but at this point, they are still defining him. They could have done almost anything, and it was an act of actual rebellion against their, their average audience that they decided that wasn't what they wanted to do. Yeah, so they decided to cut this script. David Whitaker wasn't really a fan of the script to begin with. He wanted something with more adventure, and he ended up commissioning a different script, which we're not going to get into now. I don't want to spoil anything about this particular one, since it's kind of a series-defining serial. And um, it's hard to imagine what Doctor Who would have been like if they went with the robots instead of with this Terry Nation script. It's also very hard to know exactly what David Whitaker based his decisions on, because for a guy who defined this show in countless ways, wrote strips all through the first seven years or so, and who made every major decision, he never gave an interview about the show. We don't know what his metric for anything was other than the things that turn up in it in in his stories from time to time. I didn't realize that he never really talked about the show at all. Not once. Wow. That's pretty amazing because, yeah, Whitaker was the one who was responsible for commissioning these scripts. And to not have that kind of insight, there's a lot that we really can't know about the early days then. Other than, spoiler, he likes alchemy coming up a fair amount. It's it's kind of strange. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying, and there is just a lot from these early scripts and early days that seems to have fallen by the wayside. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess he was on the, the show long enough that it does seem a little bit odd, but there's just a lot that we don't know or have including some of these stories, if we're honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was looking through a list of some of the unproduced scripts, and a lot of them just say, um, we have no idea what this story was about. At least one script was fairly far along when they realized 
it wasn't going to do any good. It wasn't going to be worth it. And so they had to pick a writer who had already done a story fairly successfully and have him scrap the story he was halfway through writing to do something that fit a different slot in the show. They wanted a science fiction story from him. And he wasn't doing that, but they wanted they wanted something like his previous success and to hell with what they had him halfway finished writing. And if it's the writer who I think you're talking about, then he pretty much wrote the same story again and again and again and again and again. You might very well think that. <laughs> you guys are not inspiring a lot of confidence here. A lot of the stories are very good, but there are also quite a few clunkers. It's like any show, especially one that's been on for 26 seasons. I'm looking at you, The Simpsons. (laughs) And of course, Gunsmoke got real predictable after the first generation. Um, But there were other writers who were headhunted for very specific reasons, Quite a few of the early stories were by a man that Sidney Newman had worked with in Canada, who was a very fine television writer who he commissioned to do the things he knew he could do well. There were people who were you know, chosen for, for their great talent. And there's also at least one person in the first season who writes a script in a career that consists of two scripts. He wrote two things ever. Wow. There's some variety of experience. Yeah. <laughs> so... Going back to um, Anthony Coburn, after that script was rejected, Coburn just left the show. I think, you know, at this point, he had written four scripts. Three of them were rejected, and he was kind of just done with it. And from everything that I've read, it seems that David Whitaker was pretty okay with this. He One thing that it seems um, we do know about Whitaker is that he felt that Coburn didn't really get Doctor Who, or at least didn't get Whitaker's vision for Doctor Who. So I think that he was pretty happy to see Coburn gone. It seems pretty likely, and it's, it's harsh to say the show may very well have been better off without him, but it did okay. Yeah, it, it lasted for, for, for a little bit without him. We're making a flipping podcast about it. <laughs> yep. So um, continuing this search for scripts, uh, Sidney Newman also apparently asked an old colleague to dust off and re- rework an old script that he had written regarding the character of Marco Polo. And Kieran, I think you'll be joining us for that particular episode as well. Oh, goody. Yep. As I mentioned, David Whitaker got a writer named Terry Nation to write a science fiction script that ended up replacing Coburn's robot story. And we'll talk about that one sometime down the line. So in addition to finding scripts for the stories, they also had some other concerns or some other things that they needed to work on, such as a title sequence. And the title sequence for this show, um, they, they created it in a fairly interesting way. They created it using video feedback techniques where a camera was pointed at its own playback on a monitor and it created all sorts of odd and interesting shapes. It was created by a man named Bernard Lodge and his name is everything that I know about him. He, he turned, a, he turned a, a minor technical screw-up into, into immortal gold, but yeah. I don't know that he did it twice. I'm kind of interested to see what this looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds crazy. Oh, it's, it's really neat looking. Speaking of sounding crazy. Yeah, <laughs> there's also the title theme. Verity Lambert wanted to this title theme to create a mysterious atmosphere. So she went to BBC's Radiophonic Workshop, where she talked to Ron Grainer, who I think was the head of it at the time. He was also probably the most esteemed television theme writer in England at the time. He was the Mike Post of his day, and he had a list of shows whose credits had his music on that was very long. And he did the theme for The Prisoner, too. Oh, wow. And Steptoe and Son, which was the biggest comedy hits of the decade. And uh, there's a television version of Maygray that has a great theme song from him. Quite menacing. Hmm. 
Well, Grainer was given the title sequence. He writes an outline for the theme song, and he hands it off to one of the people working at the uh, workshop named Delia Darvisher. And Delia Darvisher is a... She seems like she was a pretty interesting human being. She would later be known for creating sort of horror-type soundtracks. And... She took Grainer's notes, she put them all together, and she produced the theme song through pretty much entirely electric means, or electronic means. And this was really one of the first TV themes to be done this way. So she was really, she was (laughs) pretty innovative when it came to music. And when Ron Grainer heard it, his reaction was, did I write this? He was so impressed by what she'd done, he tried very hard to get her joint credit on it, only for the musicians' union to say that, no, that wasn't how it worked. <laughs> it was against the rules. So, for the most part, so, you know, he gets the official credit, but fans know that it was uh, Darvisher who deserves the credit. Was this using, like, an electronic instrument, like a theremin or something? Or, or are we talking even more primitive? There's definitely a theremin in there. I tried to read through the description of everything that she did to create the theme song, and I have no idea what it's talking about. (laughs) So she was just next level when it comes to this sort of music. The basic standard for the music for the show gets set by someone everyone considers to have been a, a genius and a pioneer of electronic music. Darvisher was not credited on screen, until the 50th anniversary special. Wow. So it's very sad that this musical pioneer and musical genius didn't get the credit she deserved for 50 years, despite everybody's best efforts to the contrary. It wasn't helped that she worked through the Radiophonic Workshop, which was a collective environment. That isn't to say she didn't do great things and remarkable things musically, but it was harder to get credit as an individual composer within it. Does she have any more notable um, horror movie soundtracks? I know that you're pretty well versed in this sort of thing. Yeah, I'm not so much versed in the music aspect outside of, say, something like Goblin or John (laughs) Carpenter. Okay, she did the theme song to one of my favorite horror movies, actually. She did the soundtrack to The Legend of Hell House. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did read that. Cool. That's a movie I haven't seen in a long time, and it's a good one. It's two Columbo murderers having an argument about science versus faith while people get killed by a ghost. (laughs) Well, I think that's enough of our Horror Talk podcast. Let us return to our Doctor Who (laughs) podcast. Find that on the deep web, yeah. (laughs) So, filming was set to start in July of 1963. There was kind of a couple problems, though. Not the least of which was they hadn't cast a doctor yet. But they also needed to find some other staff members. And one of those was the director for the first episode. So let's talk about him now. In the opening to our first episode, I made a joke. And I hope you could hear the air quotes that I put around the word joke. Um, But I made a joke about how, you know, the um, show was the creation of a Canadian, a woman, and a British Indian. And this director is the British Indian I was referring to. His name was Waris Hussein. Still is. Yes, still is. He's one of the few people who, I think he might be the only person we've mentioned thus far who's still alive. Because I don't, I don't remember if we've mentioned Caroline Ford or, or William Russell yet. But most of these people have long since died. But Waris Hussein is actually still alive. Um, he was born in 1938 in what was then British India, what's now India. He came to the United Kingdom when he was eight years old. And there he studied literature at Cambridge. He also got into directing some plays while a student there, 
And those plays featured some other students, including Derek Jacobi, who would later have a role in the new series of Doctor Who, and um, Ian McKellen. Those are pretty good people to rub elbows with. Yeah. In 1960, he joins the BBC as a director, and when Doctor Who comes along, he gets assigned to the show as a director. Uh, He was unsure of how being on this random sci-fi show would affect his career, but he came in, he ended up directing the first serial, and would also direct Marco Polo a little bit later on. After Doctor Who, he's had a long career, and as I mentioned, he's one of the few people who we're talking about who is still alive. But yeah, you had a fair amount of diversity amongst the um, people involved with the creation of the show, especially when you consider that this was 1960s Britain. Yeah, this guy sounds fascinating. His first story being mainly about uh, a junkyard and some cavemen, not to ruin it, that mindset doesn't really come into play, but it certainly does in a huge way with Marco Polo. Yeah. So we have our director, we have our producer, we have our writers. Now we have to talk about finding our cast. And on a show called Doctor Who, one of the most important people would be the character called The Doctor. I, I, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. But they did spend a fair bit of time trying to find somebody to cast as The Doctor. Back when he was the temporary producer of the show, Rex Tucker had asked a friend of his, a veteran actor named Hugh David, to take on the part. But at this point in his career... Uh, you, David, wanted to hang up his acting shoes and put on the director's hat. So David turned it down. When Verity Lambert came aboard, she asked another veteran actor named Leslie French to take on the role. Uh, French was a 60-year-old Shakespearean actor. He'd done plenty of film and TV work. He seems like somebody who anybody would want for a role in anything. So as you can imagine, he turned it, turned it down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just this silly little sci-fi show. Probably seemed lowbrow to him, you know. He would and later I, turn up for two minutes in a story 25 years later. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd imagine that this same story could be true about David Whitaker's choice for the Doctor, another veteran actor named Cyril Cusack who could pretty much be described the same way as Leslie French. He was another actor who turned it down. The first person who the documentation says was formally offered the part by the BBC, I'm guessing, is probably on your list fairly soon. That's Jeffrey Bailden. Yep, he was the next one on the list. And he was actually, he was offered the role, and I'm imagining he turned it down as well. And he's interesting in a lot of ways. For one thing, Big Finish actually had him play the Doctor a couple of times many, many years later. And for another, he was the first of those people named who really had a certain magical quality to him. You can see him being right for the part. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, He's a guy who did a lot of TV and who was on plenty of shows that would seem to fit right in with Doctor Who. In fact... Many years later, he was on an episode of Doctor Who during the time of the fourth Doctor. Playing uh, a, sl- a shady astrologer. He's, he's pretty great in it, in fact. He is. You know, when I was writing this up, I actually got him confused with another actor who is later offered the role as the Doctor, Graham Crowden. And that's a very different role that Crowden played. <laughs> I promise you, derail this podcast for a week talking about how much I love Graham Crowden. (laughs) That man was a wonderful, wonderful actor and turned up for two minutes in most of the great British films of the 70s. But that clip of him from The Horns of Nyman is my favorite bit of Doctor Who overacting of all time. He's also a co-star of Peter Davison's in one of my favorite TV shows called A Very Peculiar Practice. And he basically decides to take a fairly standard part 
and play it as a drunken King Lear in a way that could not work better. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Guys, you know, if we don't move on, we'll never find out who's that doctor. (laughs) That's true. There's no way to find out. Doctor, who's that? All right. So the person who they finally offer the role to and who actually accepts the role was a veteran actor named William Hartnell. Hartnell was born in 1908, and he ran off to London in 1924. In London, he did a variety of odd jobs. He worked as a jockey, a stable hand, he was a boxer for a while, but he wanted to be a Shakespearean actor. He loved cinema, especially Charlie Chaplin. He loved comedy. He joined a Shakespeare company, but he mostly ended up doing odd jobs and had a few walk-on roles here and there. Eventually, he left that company and joined a number of comedy productions throughout the country. In World War II, he was in the Tank Corps until um, he had a nervous breakdown about 15 months in. He spent three months in the hospital, and when he was sent home, he apparently left the army with a stutter. But that doesn't seem to have stopped his acting career. And in 1943, he was cast in a movie called The Way Ahead as a tough sergeant. And that tough sergeant role was what he became known for. He spent 20 years cast in strict military roles. And as you can imagine, after 20 years of playing the same character, he was getting a little bit tired of that, and he was looking for something new. So the first a couple of those military roles that are of note, uh, one of them is an, in the very first Carry On movie, Carry On Sergeant, which if you've never seen it, don't. And another <laughs> is the rather wonder, wonderful Peter Sellers movie, The Mouse That Roared, which is its own thing. Is that one any good? Yes, it's about the world's smallest country finding itself embroiled in a war and not doing as badly as you think. <laughs> well, Peter Sellers is great anyway. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean he's always been in good movies, but Peter Sellers <laughs> yeah. is great. Less good is the other one he's in with William Hartnell, a sort of small-town religious comedy called Heavens Above that eventually makes it to the moon, I think. it It's kind of weird. <laughs> wow. So... In 1960, Hartnell was cast in a movie called This Sporting Life, where he played, I think he played the role of a sports bookie. Talent scout. A talent scout? Okay. And it was this particular role that caught Verity Lambert's eye. She thought from seeing his work that he could bring out both the danger and the magic of the character. As I said... She imagined Doctor Who, or she imagined the Doctor. I don't want to say Doctor Who lest I get (laughs) murdered by legions of fans. But she, you almost (laughs) destroyed those podcasts. I know. (laughs) But she imagined the Doctor as the Wizard of Oz meets Father Christmas, and she thought that William Hartnell had all the qualities that could bring this to life. He had a sense of danger about him, but she also saw magic within him. She and Waris Hussein went to his house to convince him to take the role. He was a bit reluctant because he was worried that it would just turn into another one of those strict authority figures. But Hussein and Lambert convinced him that it was a character that would appeal to kids And he felt this was the change that he needed in his career. So he ended up accepting the role. And by all reports, he absolutely loved it. He loved being the doctor. He said that kids are the greatest audience and also the greatest critics. They're a pretty discerning audience, actually. Oh, absolutely. I think I said this last time. That, you know, he he was sure that some things, like how he mapped out all the controls of the TARDIS, he was sure that it wouldn't make a bit of difference to the adults, but the kids would notice if the doctor flipped one switch to open the door one week and a different switch to open the door the next. 
He also had several grandchildren who were at the exact age of the target audience and knew full (laughs) well they were the best possible sounding board for his performance. He was somebody who just absolutely loved playing this role. But there were also some problems with William Hartnell. Um, As a person, he was somebody who could be quite judgmental. He was also someone known for being rather cranky and for being easily frustrated. But one thing that we'll see time and time again was his amazing ability to flub lines. (laughs) It's so amazing that they actively have to embrace it as part of the character and just make it work. Yeah, I mean, there is kind of some question about how much of it was acting, how many of those flubs were actually flubs, how much of it was just the natural consequences of the type of filming that they did, since we'll talk about it a little bit later, but this was almost... I mean, it's the next closest thing to being live that you could get. It was expensive to retake a shot, and in order to get to retake a shot... Almost nothing could do it short of an actor breaking a leg or looking directly at the camera and swearing. Are you telling me that they just kept all of this junk in there? Oh, yeah. Like, we're just, we're fine. First take. No worries. Well, no, no. A second take just cost a fortune. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is going to be amazing. So, you know, a lot of the time that was the way that at least in the first few years they got a second take just by stopping what they were saying just saying a swear word and everyone else would stop till they could do it (laughs) because otherwise that was not going to be enough to get a retake yeah well you know and i know what sean said at the beginning of this episode that's actually how i get a retake on this show is i just like drop a few swears it's great oh yeah bay is filthy (laughs) constant swearing constant well as you've made clear that you know the standards of this are of a family show, so there is absolutely no swearing acceptable. However, like other family shows, sudden shocking violence at great regularity is A-OK. Yeah, well, apparently the occasional racial slur was allowed. We'll talk about that one when we get to the Celestial Toymaker. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that one is wow. So... Aside from talking about his flubs, William Hartnell also wasn't the healthiest person, especially as the show goes on, and some of his flubs were probably due to his ill health as well. It's not going to be two years until he gets the formal diagnosis of this and finds out exactly what has been causing it, but it is a thing to to note in that performance as it goes. Yeah, I mean, you'll see that... In some ways, um, he, he does have more and more difficulty as things go on. And if I remember correctly, it seems that he takes more vacation time as things go on as well. So with the other actors, there were three people who joined the doctor on his adventures. The first one was Carol Ann Ford, who played the character Susan, the doctor's granddaughter. Carol Ann Ford was born in 1940. So since this was 1963, despite the fact that she's playing a teenager, she is a woman in her early 20s, and she's a mother at this time. Despite this, William Hartnell still treats her like a teenager, whether they're filming or not, which she uh, occasionally got to her a bit. She... Was She had some roles before this. It was probably her role in the TV show Z-Cars that got her noticed by the people casting the show. A show that would have an influence on Doctor Who, just not any of the years she was involved in it. (laughs) But she was also in the movie Day of the Triffids a few months before they started filming Doctor Who. The next actor was William Russell. William Russell played Ian, the science teacher. Russell was born in 1924, and by the time that Doctor Who comes along, he was already a bit of an action star in Britain. He was on a show called The Adventures of Sir Lancelot as Sir Lancelot during the late 1950s, 
And also earlier in 1963, he was in the movie The Great Escape, amongst others. Oh, For wow. reference, in the, re- in the Great Escape, he is the guy next in line to escape when the lights come on and the guards swarm in on them, meaning he is the one with his head sticking out of the ground when the guards show up. He was the perfect guy to be the sort of action hero of Doctor Who. And you'll see what I mean in the upcoming episodes. The third actor who was cast was Jacqueline Hill, who played Barbara, the history teacher. Uh, Jacqueline Hill was born in 1929. She was an orphan who was raised by her grandparents. And at the age of 14, she was taken out of school to ensure that her brother could continue on. So after she left school, she worked at Cadbury's, where she got involved with their amateur drama society. Through her work with this drama society, she was encouraged to apply for a scholarship at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which she won, and she entered the academy at the age of 16. She ended up acting in a number of plays, and she married one of her directors, Alvin Rakoff. And um, there's actually an interesting story that Kieran mentioned to me regarding her and this particular director and an actor named Sean Connery. She discovered him, basically. Her husband was directing the, the, the British version of Rod Serling's Requiem for a Heavyweight, which had had a, a film version and a TV version here. And for the British version, he could not find a lead until, until, her, until his wife recommended someone. And that was the first big role of a very long career for him. You may have heard of that. Yeah, enter James Bond and, uh, you know, everything else that he's done since then. My goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so aside from being one of the first companions of Doctor Who, she also created Sean Connery. So there's plenty to uh, remember Jacqueline Hill for. And Jacqueline Hill knew Verity Lambert socially, and when they were looking to cast somebody as Barbara, Lambert ended up offering the role to Jacqueline. So that's how she ended up on the show. So now we have all of our main actors in place, and we could talk about the filming and airing of the series. Filming, as I mentioned, was initially set to begin in July of 1963, actually began on September 27th of 1963, where they filmed the initial pilot. And I say initial because Sidney Newman watched it, and he absolutely hated what he saw. There were a lot of technical errors. The most Um, famous one being a set of doors that kept making a loud grinding noise through one of the long scenes in the episode. (laughs) Yeah, there was that. The door wouldn't close properly. He felt that the background of the doctor and Susan was just way too specific. He felt that Susan just seemed too alien and the doctor just came across as too sinister. I've seen that initial pilot. I don't, I kind of like it, but yeah, what they ended up airing was better. The the changes are mostly small, but they are absolutely there. Yeah. And, Fairly essential, too. But you didn't like that grinding? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> they decided that uh, grotesque technical errors were not the thing that they wanted to be known for. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, this is one of the few cases where they're just like, nope, we're going to reshoot this whole thing. So they actually reshot the pilot three weeks later. And that is extraordinarily rare at this point in British television. Extraordinarily rare. In fact, there are only about three TV shows that I can think of that had two pilots. And all of them were long-running successes. Star Trek and Columbo were the other two. Mm -hmm. Wow, Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, there was Star Trek, you had uh, The Cage, and then you also had... I don't remember what the first actual episode was, but yeah, they changed pretty much the whole cast except Spock. Where no man has gone before, I believe. Yeah. 
I, I remember seeing that one and being very confused because I'm like, I thought I knew these characters, but where is everybody? Yep. <laughs> well, they later they they won a Hugo Award for the reworking it into a into a two parter with that footage because why not? You've got an episode in the can yeah. starring no one. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the production schedule for Doctor Who, and we'll take it day by day. Monday through Wednesday was set aside for rehearsing and line learning. Because the since you needed to get it done pretty much perfectly the first time, uh, you needed to have your lines down. So they spent three days doing that rehearsing. And also on Wednesday, they did some pre-shooting. Any odd or difficult shots. And later on, when they were able to do location shooting, uh, the location shooting was also done on Wednesdays. On Thursday... That was their publicity day, and any pre-shooting that hadn't been finished on Wednesday was done then. Friday was the busy day. From 10 to 1, and then from lunch until 7, they had their final rehearsals, and then they recorded the episode between 8.30 and 9.45. Wait, at at night? Yep. Yep. Wow. That's a pretty rough day. (laughs) Yeah. So pretty much all day rehearsing, and then they film it for a little bit over an hour. And the union rules would have guaranteed that if they didn't have it done by about 10, the lights were going out anyway. (laughs) So they had to get it done. On Sunday, you had your post-production. The whole thing was put together, and it was aired three weeks later. Wow. Yeah. And as we've mentioned a couple times... Editing was very, very limited because um, if they had to cut the tape in any way, that meant the tapes couldn't be reused. And since tapes were expensive, they wanted to be able to reuse them, which, of course, is why you have missing episodes. But everything was shot in order. They would pause for costume changes. If there were major mistakes, they would rewind the film and retape it. And that was only for really, really major mistakes. Uh, sound effects would get added in later. I was going to ask, how did they get the, the location shots in there then? Because for a year, they didn't have them. There is, yeah. I think, one location shot in the whole first year. Wow. Okay. Um, and that's in the last story. It's, it's a ways off. It also doesn't have any member of the regular cast in it. It has someone walking down a street dressed like William Hartnell from behind. <laughs> Yeah, so location shooting was not a thing that happened for the first 48 episodes, really. After they had everything on tape, it was then transferred to film, where any cutting that needed to be done was done. And that's how the location shooting got in, or sound effects were added. Overseas copies were made from there, and um, this, this whole process that was done so they could reuse the tapes... That's why about one-seventh of the show is lost. Because all of these tapes, pretty much all of these tapes, ended up getting wiped and reused. When you say overseas copies, uh, where else was this being aired? Quite a few places. It aired in Canada, at least for the first season, and Australia right away. But it sold all over the Commonwealth, and as the show got more successful, to almost every corner of the globe. There are some episodes where... Stories are missing, but random bits of it have come back with the Arabic translation dubbed over it. Oh, man. <laughs> cool. And the, fa- and the fact that it sold to Hong Kong and Africa is going to be very important to the discoveries of lost episodes down the line. Yeah, because that is where most of the found episodes have come from. The most recent found ones were those the ones that were found in a vault in Nigeria. You're kidding me. Wow, this is cool. In like a secondary archive relay station. Another one, uh, another story that had been lost was found at a, in a film vault in Cyprus. And quite literally, two episodes of that are still missing because a third of the prints of that were destroyed by a bomb. Wow. So there's a story coming up where you get episodes one, two, three, and six. Yep. 
I'm glad we're doing this history. There's like some pretty cool stuff in here. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. And Doctor Who is one of the British shows with the most episodes still in existence, which is amazing when you think about it. Stowe and Son is completely intact. Other than that, if you want to watch any of the other very good shows of that era, good luck. Yeah, I mean, if you want to watch another show that Sidney Newman helped create, The Avengers, a lot of those early episodes you're not going to find anywhere. I don't even think those exist in audio form. And I know all of Doctor Who exists in audio form because fans would actually literally hold up tape recorders to the TV and record the audio. And professional sound engineers started doing it for professional reasons because they started realizing, oh, this is where all the really innovative sound design and music is going on. I am going to record this. And so the the recordings that we have now are for the most part really good because professionals started caring about what they were doing. The other record from it, do we want to talk about John Cura and Telesnaps? Oh, gosh. I don't know much about that. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, be my guest. Okay. So if you were someone who worked in television in the 60s, you could not just show somebody your resume. You could not look back on it. So TV directors and cinematographers and costume designers and set designers all used the services of a guy called John Cura who was a professional photographer who would, he had developed a technique where you could take still photography of the show as it aired. So you would have a photographic record of it. And if you try to do that when you're not a professional with professional equipment, it does not work at all. The uh, BBC hired him to do this as a service for the people who were working for them. And as a result, the photo records of a lot of the missing episodes that we have are these photographs that he took off screen. The problem is two things. One is that when they show changes producers later on, the next producer decides, I don't know that we need this. It, let's save some money. And so there is a year where we don't have them because the BBC stopped paying him to do it. Yeah, I have plenty of words about John Wiles, but we'll save that. By the last season of the 60s uh, that still has missing st- stories in it, by the late 60s, John Cura was dying. He stopped doing it. The next to last story of the 60s doesn't have them because he was, I believe, on his deathbed through the course of it. He did not live to see the show turn to color. Yeah. And it was his sister about 15 years later who found all of these things in his attic and basically offered them back to the BBC where they realized this is the only visual record we have for quite a lot of Doctor Who. Yeah, and a lot of very enterprising fans took these telesnaps, took some of the surviving video that was found, took the audio, and that's how you end up with the reconstructions. So every episode has been reconstructed in some way using all these various sources. I was I was just going to say there's just so many people involved with the the making of this and then, you know, archiving and remaking it in cases where it all (laughs) kind of uh, was was lost or intentionally discarded. And they matter to the story of the show in a lot of real ways. That's the really amazing thing, that unlike almost any other show, there are periods where in a lot of ways the fans take over. When the show is canceled, the books happen and the writers of those books become the next generation of the television writers. Yeah, you had those big Finnish audios, which are still going on. How long have those been going on now? Nearly 15, 16 years. Uh, Next year is their 20th anniversary of doing Doctor Who. Yeah, and some of those audios are pretty fantastic. I've listened to a couple hundred of them. That is a rabbit hole we could lose you down for a month. So, (laughs) Yeah, you know, once we get through the... um, However many years it'll take us to do all of the TV episodes, maybe we could spend another 30 decades doing the big Finnish audios and books and everything else. One day our our children will be able to finish all of the audio. Grandchildren. Uh, The grandchildren. They they may not. I think this month Big Finish is putting out 12 hours of Doctor Who audio. Wow. 
they put out a lot of stuff in a month and they do other shows, but they do a lot of Doctor Who and most of it is very, very good. They've got half a dozen doctors from the show for one thing to keep in work and, yeah, and a just, lot of supporting characters and spinoffs. Yeah. Keep in mind that with these big Finnish audios, they have the actual actors who played the doctor and the companions come back and do the voices. So these aren't just sound alikes for the most part. I mean, with a couple of the doctors who are dead, yeah, they'll, they'll have a sound alike if they ever do any work with that. Fraser Hines does a fantastic Patrick Chowden. They have three very good William Hartnells for depending <laughs> circumstances. I need to figure out how to become a doctor. It sounds like that's like a gravy train. I don't think the well, the 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 money may not be great, but they apparently put on an amazing lunch. There are terrific <laughs> actors who keep doing big finish stuff left, right, and center because the lunches are so good. David Warner does a lot of big finish, and he deserves all the best lunches in the world. Well, David Warner just in general does a lot of everything. Yes, he does. But he does it so well. Yeah. So maybe not a figurative gravy train, but maybe a literal one. They literally get paid in gravy. (laughs) So anyway, the last thing to talk about is the airing of the show. The show, the first episode of the show aired on November 23rd, 1963. Bay, can you think of anything that happened around November 23rd, 1963? I can't tell whether this would be a very good or a very bad time to be on television. Um, there's definitely something that happened in American history in, uh, in November 1963. 22nd. <laughs> yep. The Kennedy assassination was November 22nd, 1963. On British TV, on the BBC, there was about 24 hours of news coverage. The first episode of Doctor Who was the very first show back from all this news coverage. And a lot of people, when this new show came on, they changed the channel to watch more news coverage. So the first episode did not have that many viewers. And it's actually one of the rare instances of something being repeated in British television. They re-showed the first episode the following week before the second episode aired. They were hoping, you know, now that there's not this massive, massive decade-altering news story happening, maybe people will actually watch the show. That's a massive cultural touch point for a generation. It's like people talk about it like 9-11 or the Challenger explosion. I mean, the Kennedy assassination was huge. It was huge here in America. It was huge across the seas. I mean, my father grew up in Ireland, and he remembers that. So um, it was huge everywhere. Definitely in Canada, anyway. The the thing you, that this always sort of exemplifies to me is the, the BBC's very schizophrenic level of interest towards Doctor Who, that there were people who clearly wanted the show to fail as an idea they didn't think was good and other who were willing others who were willing to put a show of faith in it. Putting on a repeat of it is the act of, of a department head who thinks the show deserves a chance. At the same time, it's being given the worst facilities imaginable. There is a tug of war happening that is going to go on through the decades. Well, I was also thinking about the fact that you said they reshot the pilot. If you went and reshot the pilot, you want to make sure you get some eyeballs on it. Yeah, I mean, one of the people who really wanted this show to succeed, luckily, was Sidney Newman. And I think when you have the head of drama behind you and basically working to create this show, you're going to get a bit more leeway than some other shows would. And that includes being able to refilm that pilot and having your first episode repeated when it has to compete with the biggest news story of the 1960s. Well, you know, aside from the moon landing, perhaps, but yes. (laughs) Welcome to Rate the Kennedy Assassination and the Moon Landing, a show where people compete to see which of those things they think is the bigger news story. 
<laughs> this is a format that was not thought through. <laughs> we have 200 episodes planned of arguments about this. We're going to start in uh, the modern era and we're going to work decade by decade back through history. Which was the bigger news story? The building of the pyramids or the creation of fire? You're going to hear a, an argument for one side of that very soon. Yes. <laughs> Next week, in fact. I guess the only other thing that I want to say about the airing is that according to legend, the first episode started about 10 minutes late. In reality, it seems like it was more about half a minute, if anything. But it doesn't matter if people are changing the channel. I should think that to anyone watching, the 30 seconds of news bulletin about the Kennedy assassination probably felt like at least 10 minutes. So that is everything that we have to talk about in this episode. Next time, we'll actually start talking about the first serial, An Unearthly Child. We'll be joined by two of our guest hosts. Uh, for the first few episodes, we're going to have two guest hosts per each serial, just so that you could get introduced to everybody we'll be bringing on. Please join us next time for An Unearthly Child. And uh, the music that you heard at the beginning of the episode was uh, from multi-instrumentalist Kate Rears Bergman, who is good enough to do the theme for our podcast. We look forward to joining you next time. We'll see you all then. Good night. Thank you. Goodbye.